It is often said that one of the most positive distinguishing factors about being part of the Whitworth community is the meaningful relationships with, pre with professors that go far beyond the scope of the classroom. In the past year, I have had the immense joy of having Josh Lyme and his wife Keely, along with their wonderful kids, be an integral part of my everyday life. Spending time with this family has truly been a highlight of my year. From sharing meals and good conversation with the family, to watching Josh coach baseball, to hanging out with the kids while Josh and Keeley take a well-deserved break. I've truly felt like part of their family. Josh has not only been a theologically impactful teacher, but also a Christ-exemplifying mentor to me, cherished friend, and has even been a piano student of mine. Thank you, Josh, for your never-ending kindness, compassion, and dedication to following the way of Christ with thoughtfulness and humility. Your life is an example to us all. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Josh Lyme. Hello. Let's pray together. Our Father, illuminate us by the power of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, that we may know him and that we may love him. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. So you go to the bookstore, mostly online these days, and I'm sure you know you can find this sort of endless stream of books that tell you how to live a life that flourishes. One of the most remarkable recent phenomenons uh, in this regard is this guy named Jordan Peterson. I'm sure some of you have heard of him, maybe read his books, maybe some of you don't like him. Um, but one of the most sold books of nonfiction in 2018 was Jordan Peterson's book titled 12 Rules for Life, The Antidote to Chaos, which is a great subtitle, The Antidote to Chaos. Uh, yes, please, right? I have four kids. Um, I mean, four wonderful kids, but it's still chaos, right? Within three months of being published, it had sold almost 750,000 copies. It topped the charts of just about every measurement out there. Whatever you think about Jordan Peterson, the phenomenon that he is right now says something about how deeply human beings long to be told how to live a life that flourishes, to live a life that means something. For all, we, right, we talk a lot about individualism in the United States and our anti-authoritarianism, but for all of that, we still long for someone to tell us with wisdom, what it means to live a life that makes a difference. Or as Adam Nieder put it a couple years ago, simply how not to waste our lives. But in a book like Peterson's, and many like them, what you don't hear is what Luke tells us in these two passages we read, what the Christian scriptures tell us broadly, and what every bit of the Christian tradition has agreed upon for what constitutes a flourishing human life that will bless the world. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? It was at the end of Acts chapter 17. 
It says, the, these people, they've turned the order of the world upside down, and they've come here also, and Jason has received them, and all of them are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is a different king, Jesus. There's a different king, Jesus. There is a different king, Jesus. The Christian version of Peterson's book perhaps would be titled, One Rule for Life. And it would have one chapter with lots of subheadings, right? It would simply be titled, Jesus is King. Order everything else accordingly. If you live your life by this one single criterion, if you are a Christian today, you will not waste your life. You may become CEO of a Fortune 500 company. You are still under the authority of King Jesus. You may end up parking cars for that Fortune 500 company. You still have the honor of serving that king, Jesus. Now, if it's true that the center of Christian faith is this proclamation that Jesus lives and he lives as king, this raises two important questions for us. Actually, a lot more questions, but we're just going to talk about two. First, how does one cultivate a life that reflects this reality and not any other? And secondly, what should we expect from a life lived with Jesus as king? So let's talk about this first question. How does one cultivate a life that reflects this reality? There's a different king, Jesus. Now, you all know as well, or probably better than I do, that the competition for your attention right now is almost incomprehensible. It's hard to even measure. The most recent statistic I saw was that in 2018, there were $180 billion spent in the U.S. on advertising to try to get your attention. There was a, a report in Psychology Today in 2017. It said that 62% of people admitted to buying something to cheer themselves up, right? Like we live in a world that even when we know cognitively, this won't cheer me up for long, right? It still convinces us, buy something, you'll feel better. Last example, the American Marketing Association, they publish an online journal. And in 2017, they had an article titled this, Why Your Customer's Attention is the Scarcest Resource in 2017. That is precisely right. Attention is a very scarce resource. Simone Weil, the wonderful Christian mystic and philosopher, put it this way, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. So how do we live like Jesus is king in this kind of world? All of these things vying for our attention. And they do a really good job of it. Well, Luke tells us there are at least four things that shape a life whose trajectory is toward the king. Now, you heard in the passage, and before we dive into these four things, I want to draw our attention to something. Luke says they were devoting their, uh, themselves continuously to these things. Now, stick with me on that phrase for a moment. That way of translating it is a little too weak. For our, our Greeks, we have some Greek students out here. A Sunday proskartaruntes. There's something is like um, they were giving their utmost attention to it continuously. They were diligently pursuing it. They were going after it all the time with everything they were. That's the idea. He sets up the scene of these crucial factors like that. I mean, think of it like, it's the opposite of what you did in Core 150, okay? That's basically the idea, right? Or think of, like, remember Dobby, the house elf in Harry Potter, right? This is Dobby, the house elf, how much he's attached to Harry Potter. Right? Harry can't get rid of him even if he wants to, 
Right? Of course, in the end, Dobby is so attached, so diligently committed to Harry that he's willing to pay the ultimate price. That's pras runtes, diligently devoted to it. Now, all of you already have, all of you students at least, already have an idea of what this is like. Right? The past four years, you've been diligently giving yourself to a field of study, presumably. <laughs> right? You know what it's like to learn the language of a field of discipline, right? To learn to see the world through that new language, to think about the world that way. My guess is that for some of you finance majors, right, that you, um, you now it's hard not to see everything in financial terms, right? I mean, even things that are not financial, like relationships, right? Before you go into a relationship, right? Maybe I should calculate the ROI on this thing, right? What's the risk and cost, right? The cost-benefit ratio here. Um, or you psychology majors, right? Now you maybe see everything through the DSM-5, this diagnostic manual, right? You go to enter a relationship. Does this person have a personality disorder, right? Access to maybe, right? Or maybe I have a personality disorder, right? We, we learn to see the world through this language because we've diligently given ourselves to it. Well, so also for the early Christians. They were devoting themselves to these things that Luke tells us, and it taught them to see and to live in the world through them. So what's the first thing? Luke tells us that they were devoting themselves diligently to the apostles' teaching. Now, by the apostles' teaching, Luke means something like the preaching and teaching we see in the book of Acts. And... Uh, the whole first volume that he writes about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Luke says, I got this story from those original followers of Jesus, the apostles. That's what he means. Now there's, of course, a ton that we could talk about with the apostles' teaching. But two key things I want us to hold on to first. The two things that the apostles' teaching tells us as Christians. It tells you who you are and it tells you what you are to do. It tells you who you are and what you are to do. The first thing, it tells you who you are. If we were to study Luke and Acts together, we would see this rise to the top over and over again. That Jesus emphasizes, that the apostles, when they teach, emphasize that who you are, your identity, what is the center of your being, is not your gender or your race or your ethnicity or your major or your career or the good favor of your preferred group whatever it is, none of that. Nothing else in heaven and on earth is the center of who you are other than one thing. Luke captures it maybe best in the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus goes to this shunned and shameful person who everybody thinks doesn't belong and they expect Jesus to shun him. And he goes to Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today and I'm going to have fellowship with you. And then while he's having dinner with Zacchaeus, for all the naysayers who might be there, who think this guy doesn't belong, Jesus announces in front of everybody, this guy too is the son of Abraham because I came to seek and to save the lost. He is part of the family because of what I have done. The son of God went into the far country because he wanted you. It is hard to overstate the centrality of this for knowing that Jesus is your king. It's kind of like attachment theory in psychology. This idea that a child, when they grow up, they have to have one primary caregiver that they know is for them, that gives them security, a sense of belonging in the world, and that enables them to go into the world to take risks, to live into their full potential. This notion in the apostles' teaching is like Christian attachment theory. You have to know that you are attached to your king because he has first attached himself to you. 
Now, secondly, the apostles' teaching tells you who you uh, tells you who you are. Now it tells you what you are to do. This makes sense, of course, because who you are in Jesus is inextricably tied to what you do. Sometimes we create a bit of a false dichotomy. I've even heard it said, God cares more about who you are than what you do. But there's no such separation in the gospel. You might think about it like this. I love uh, car logos, right? Like the little emblems they put on cars. They can be really, some are terrible, but some are really neat. And my favorite one is a Ferrari. Have you ever seen the Ferrari logo, right? It's this really cool black stallion that's raised up on his back legs, right? And he looks like he's just about to take off. It's a perfect emblem for a Ferrari. And when you see that emblem on a car, you know one thing. That car is really fast, right? Like really fast. A car that has that emblem on it that's slow is a contradiction in terms. So also for a Christian, when God puts his mark on your life, daughter, son, it says something about what you are to do in the world. That there is one thing you are to do in the world. You serve a different king. Or to put it slightly differently, if you are a son or a daughter of the king, then your one primary job is to bear a family resemblance. Look like your king. Now, the second thing Luke tells us is prayer. Prayer together, not just prayer alone. Now, in a world that values efficiency and productivity, it's hard to imagine a more inefficient use of time than prayer. Martin Luther is famous for putting it this way. He says, I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours in prayer. That's a high bar. Uh, But we all know what this is like already. That to have any meaningful living relationship, you have to give yourself attentively to that relationship. Deliberate communication. We've probably, many of us have been in this situation, you go out to dinner and you, you look and there's a couple sitting over there and what are they both doing? Right? They're on their phones and then they get served dinner, right? And what are they doing? They're still on their phones. What do you think? That ain't going to last right? You just know it's not going to last because you have to have deliberate communication. Prayer is our chance to be attentively in the presence of Jesus, to empty ourselves before him and to be filled anew with him. Or it's a little like this. Uh, Do you all ever watch that show, Alaska, The Last Frontier? I don't know if it's on anymore. Uh, It was about a, a family homesteading in Alaska. And I mean, they were kind of homesteading. It turned out, this was disappointing. They lived like 10 minutes from like the major town, right? But it was fun while it lasted. So One of the characters during the winter gets scurvy. You health sciences majors know a lot more about this than I do. It's a lack of vitamin C, right? And he's in awful condition. His his gums are bleeding. He's in terrible pain. He's anemic. It's just terrible, right? From lacking this one little vitamin that doesn't allow his body to process anything else he eats. Perhaps we could say that neglecting prayer is the spiritual scurvy, right? It's the scurvy of the spiritual life, we might say. That without it, we won't be able to process anything else well. Luke then tells us that they were in fellowship and breaking bread together. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this term. It's where we get uh, that language of koinonia, fellowship, common life together, sharing life. It's the image that Luke paints of day in and day out being together, serving Jesus. It's what Tolkien captures so wonderfully in the Lord of the Rings series, especially in the way he tells of the journey of Sam and Frodo. When you read the book, sometimes it's almost in painstaking detail every day, walking, walking, walking towards Mordor. And it's Frodo's, excuse me, Sam's faithfulness to Frodo that makes the journey possible in the first place and in the last. 
perhaps we should be asking, who is your Sam? And who is your Frodo? Because in truth, every Christian is a Sam and every Christian is a Frodo. We need Sams that help us serve our King more faithfully. And we need Frodo's. We need to be a Sam to somebody who helps someone else reach service to their King. Lastly, Luke says, radical generosity. This is something that Luke emphasizes over and over. Now let's just go ahead and say it. This is not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Perhaps unfortunately for us, Jesus talks about this maybe more than any other topic. That the way we handle our wealth is a window into the condition of our souls. Or as Jesus puts it, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve both God and money. Now the point here is not a guilt trip, uh, but maybe a reality check. Guilt can be a good barometer, right? Maybe we should pay attention if we feel a little guilt, uh, but it's a terrible long-term motivator. The sort of generosity in this picture that Luke paints has to come from a deeper place than guilt. Perhaps it comes from these other practices he's talking about. Living together with one another, doing life together, being in prayer, in fellowship, meeting together in our homes day by day, especially in the early Christian community with the poorer brothers and sisters. Maybe if we learn to do that, we will learn to share our wealth. Now, on the whole, we will fail a lot at this. Right? I, I take comfort in the fact that Jesus knows this. Uh, we're going to disappoint ourselves. We're going to disappoint other people. And other people are going to disappoint us. But the cost of giving up this vision is too high. It really is. The cost is too high. Maybe we can think a, a little, about it a little bit like this. Um, whenever I see this list that Luke gives and I feel intimidated, I think about something that happened to me about four years ago. So we were moving from the East Coast to Washington. And uh, we had gotten to Yellowstone and we were staying right outside of Yellowstone. And I was really excited about this because we were, we were going to get to hike in Yellowstone. We were going to get to fish in Yellowstone, all this. And one night uh, we had put the kids down. It was about eight o'clock. And I thought, oh man, now I have about two hours to go fish for a little while. You know, it's summertime in Wyoming. So you have, you know, a couple hours before the sun goes down. So I find this remote spot, which probably wasn't the smartest thing in the first place. And uh, there were these great little tributaries coming into the Yellowstone River. So I cross one tributary, it's about 10 yards wide, about waist deep, to get to this other one in order to fish. And I fish for a while, and of course, what do I do? I fish too long, right? So by the time I look up, it's really getting dark. So I started to get a little nervous, like, I need to get home. I'm near Yellowstone, right? Bears and stuff. So I go back to the tributary that I crossed. And as I step in the water, I notice there's something in the water there. And I look over, and it's this enormous beaver. I, I mean, he's really enormous in my imagination now. Uh, and he's swimming toward me. And my first thought was, of course, oh, thank you, Jesus. Well, this is beautiful, being out in nature with a beaver. Wow. It was not beautiful. Let me tell you what happened. I stepped in the water, and that beaver swam toward me as fast as he could, started sla slapping his tail on the water, like, bro, you are not coming in here. <laughs> okay, so I backed away. No joke, like six or eight months earlier, you can probably still find this story on the internet. I'd read a story about a fisherman who had gotten too close to a beaver and had bitten through his leg and he bled out right there. Okay, so this is what's in my mind. Okay, <laughs> right? So I, I back away and I go looking for another way to get back to my car. But this is like dense woods. It's getting dark. There's no way I'm going through the woods in the dark, right? In Yellowstone, getting lost or maybe something worse. 
So I go back, the same spot. He does the exact same thing. So I look one more time, right? I can't find a way. So I go back to that tributary. I'm not kidding you, Scout's Honor. Now there are two beavers. <laughs> two beavers there waiting for me. These things are materializing out of nowhere, right? So I'm, I'm genuinely nervous at this point. Actually genuinely nervous for two reasons. One is that like, I have to get back to my car and I don't want to get attacked by a beaver. And secondly, you know when you get in stressful situations, sometimes your mind slows down and you start thinking about things? I started thinking about future scenarios, like this future conversation. Did you hear that Josh Lyme died? No, how did that happen? He was attacked by a beaver. Like, <laughs> that's not a thing, right? <laughs> Does that happen? Right? And this is my honor at stake, right? At least it could be a bear or a mountain lion or something, right? It's kind of pathetic if I get killed by a beaver. So, right, I look around and there's this big stick sitting next to me. So I pick up this big stick, right? Christian nonviolence only goes so far. So I pick up this big stick and I'm a, I was like, okay, I, this is the river I have to cross. So I take a few steps back and I get a running start which I didn't really think, I, I know this, I was 35 years old at the point. What happens when you try to run through waist deep water? Yeah, it doesn't work out very well. That's like, that's not a thing either, right? You don't run, you wade slowly through waist deep water. So I'm wading through this waist deep water and I'm looking over at these beavers nervously. Now amazingly, um, it turned out that this other beaver that showed up it seems that she was a mommy beaver. <laughs> so this guy who was protecting his territory became much more interested in the mommy beaver than in me at that moment, which was like a win-win, right? It was a win for him and it was a win for me. I got home to my car. <laughs> I, I told this to a mentor of mine and the first thing that came out of his mouth, he was like, man, that is the Christian life. It's like, you're going about a 10th as fast as you expect or you want to go, right? You're in a foreign environment, you're scared, right? there's danger all around, but there's only one way home. There's only one way home to your king. Perhaps the, Luke, the vision that Luke paints for us, we need to think about in that way. There's only one way home to our king Jesus. It's daily persisting in these practices that Luke sets forth for us. Especially that first one, remembering who you are in Jesus and therefore what he's called you to do. Now I'll end with this. I know we're I'm going on here. So I just want to reflect on this second question for a moment. If that's what it means to live into what it means for Jesus to be king, what should we expect from that life? Luke tells us two seemingly contradictory things. In Acts chapter 2, did you notice that he said they were finding favor with all the people? What a remarkable statement. Christians finding favor with everybody. But there was something about the Christian life together that was deeply attractive and winsome and convincing for people. In the ancient world that was full of death and suffering and hardship, they lived in a community of joy and generosity. I'm reminded of a story about the uh, well-known historian and biographer A.N. Wilson. He had wandered away from Christian faith for a long time. He ran in Oxford circles with some very famous atheists. He, he wrote a book against faith. Um, but slowly he was drawn back to faith over the years. And in 2009, he wrote an article in the New Statesman of how he came back to faith. And he says the final straw for him was this. He says, I was writing a book about the Wagner family in Nazi Germany and realizing how utterly incoherent were Hitler's neo-Darwinian ravings and how potent was the opposition. The opposition, much of it that came from Christians, paid for not with clear intellectual victory, 
but in blood. Read Pastor Bonhoeffer's book, Ethics. Think of Bonhoeffer's serenity before he was hanged, even though he was in love and had everything to look forward to. It was the witness of the Christian community, the joyful and courageous witness in the face of suffering that drew him back to faith, favor with all the people. But that's not the whole story. Did you hear in Acts 17? It doesn't sound quite that rosy, does it? He says, Jason and his companions are hauled before the city magistrates. They're accused of the last thing you want to be accused of in the Roman Empire, disturbing the public order. Right? You could get, a lot, get away with a lot in the Roman Empire, but disturbing the public order is not one of them. It's one of the things that gets Jesus crucified. They're turning the order of the world upside down and defying the decrees of Caesar. Is that true? Is it true that the early Christians were turning the world upside down? In one very important sense, it is absolutely true. It is an accurate accusation. Everywhere the early Christians pop up, they challenge the status quo. The status quo at that time was marked by almost unbridled lust for power and dominance, violence, exploitation of human beings, politics of deception and fear, and maybe most insidiously underlying it all, this notion that the way it was, was the way it had to be. This is reality. But the early Christians that serve this different king live according to a very different reality. A reality that said the one with the most power had given up that power in order to redeem his enemies. The one with the most honor had humbled himself into fellowship with the shameful. The one with the right to condemn had made a way for reconciliation. And so all over Acts, as the early Christians live this, they turn the world upside down. At Lystra in Acts 14, idolatrous practices are challenged. Exploitative economic practices at Philippi are turned on their heads. The entire, entire social, economic, and political order in Ephesus is challenged because Paul preaches and lives Jesus is king. And they don't do these things because they're out for revolution or because they're anti-authoritarian. It happens simply because they live Jesus is king. Last thing to try to capture what I'm saying here. A friend of mine a few years ago became a U.S. citizen, and he was extremely excited about this. And as you may know, when someone becomes a citizen, they get this form letter from the president. And this letter, the language that's used captures what it seems to me, marks living in the kingdom of Jesus. He says, this is just part of it. He says, I'm honored to congratulate you on becoming a citizen of the United States of America. You have sworn a solemn oath to this country. You share in its privileges and its responsibilities. Since our founding, generations of immigrants have come to this country full of hope for a brighter future, and they've made sacrifices in order to pass that legacy on to their children and grandchildren. This is the price and promise of citizenship. You are now a part of this precious history. That's a remarkable letter to me. It's filled with hope and with gravity, grace and welcoming simultaneously with you have a profound duty. Jesus is our king. We share in distinct privileges and responsibilities because of that. We share in the price and the promise of being citizens of his kingdom. May he empower us to live like it. Amen.